A group of MSU alumni are making their mark in sound engineering and mixing in Hollywood, and they're garnering Emmy nominations and awards, too. The group is affectionately known as the Audio Mafia. The common denominator is longtime MSU audio teacher Gary Reed, who's also Emeritus Director of Broadcasting and General Manager of WKAR Radio and Television. Andy Lang is up for two Emmys this year. Phil DeTolve and Gary McGregian are up for one each for a total of four in January. Pat Sacconi won the Mafia's first Emmy almost 30 years ago and has played an important role in getting all these guys started in their careers in Los Angeles. Sacconi has been mixing all of Alexander Payne's films. Mike Ullman has won three Emmys with shows like 24, Desperate Housewives, and Discovery Channel's When Dinosaurs Ruled the Earth. Chris Foster is co-owner of a major music editing post house in L.A. and is nominated this year, too. And Luke Schwartzweller, the youngest alumnus, mixed the last Indiana Jones film, Ferrari, and West Side Story, essentially doing Steven Spielberg's work. Welcome, gentlemen. So what does it mean to be an audio or sound engineer or mixer? What do you do? The work is kind of divided amongst a big team. It's not one person doing all the work. So someone doing the sound editorial um, will be you know, making sure all the audio is in sync, making sure um, if there are alternate takes or ADR that gets um, scheduled and recorded and placed in the timeline. Um, there's also sound effects editorial where that person is actually putting in the sound effects. Um, there's Foley editors, and those are the people that are uh, taking the Foley that's been recorded on a Foley pit and then also making sure it's in sync with production and that type of work. And then once the editorial is finished, it goes to the mix process and the mixer will take all the elements, get it in their session. Um, and then it's basically just making a soundtrack that is, you know, is smooth, it's impactful, it's dynamic. Uh, but most importantly, realizing the vision of the person sitting behind you. So, you know, there's a great deal of learning to balance your ego and knowing that this is not your project. So even if I have a strong opinion on sound or a music cue or a dialogue line, you got to throw it all out the window and listen to the people behind you. Cause those are the ones that are, they're going to call you back to do more work if you jive well. And uh, you know, one thing that Reed told me back way, way, way back when is uh, it's not the, the quality of the mix that makes a good mixer. It's, having a good time with the people you're working with and making sure that everyone's at ease and everyone is uh, taken care of. And because those are the experiences that the paying clients are going to remember, you know, they can go to any place in town and get a fairly decent mix, but the people they want to work with and sit with for hours and hours at a time are the people that make them feel relaxed and, you know, um, make it a smooth process for everyone. So there's, much more to mixing and editing and anything audio related there's much more to it than just the tech side of it there's definitely a interpersonal part of it and being able to work with people being able to work with egos you know a lot of the times the the producers or directors that we work with they have their own ego you know and so we need to respect and manage that and um i mean i'm trying to learn every day you know i'm trying to get myself one percent better every day so it, it goes beyond just the sound aspect 
of things in our profession. Yeah. So we, you know, we're, we're working on a film or a TV show. Uh, the picture is going back and forth and back and forth. And, you know, by the time we've, uh, you know, worked on a project, we've seen it a, a thousand plus times. Uh, and we, um, you know, uh, we mix in detail. Yes, you've got a room full of people. And, you know, as Phil so eloquently said, uh, you know, mixing is just, you know, part of it, maybe even just 20% of it. We're, we're coaches, we're referees, we're psychologists, we're, you know, peacemakers, we're, you know, many, many things um, just as a sound supervisor and just as a music editor, uh, you know, uh, you've got to work well with the composer. Uh, as a music editor, you, as a sound supervisor, you also have to work hand in hand with the director or the the showrunner. And uh, it's there's a lot of egos and a lot of um, management, if you will. So, uh, you know, it goes beyond the definition of the occupation, if you will. Uh, and and I think you know what all of the guys are saying here is. Um, you know, we all started off at rookies. We all have a story. We all started somewhere. But at 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 some point, and and what we all have in common is that we were blank slates. We were blank slates with a, a you know a, a hunger for knowledge. And and Gary, th this is what we all have in common. It was Gary Reed who recognized that hunger and that desire and uh, filled that blank slate with base knowledge that gave us all the opportunity to build careers and be recognized amongst our peers. So, you know, I just want to make sure that we go, go back to that as well, that that's what we all have in common. We were all rookies at one point, but before then we were blank slates that, uh, that, 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 that read filled with information and our education with, uh, at Michigan State University also was invaluable. And quite frankly, and I think the guys, yeah, I think you'll also agree with me as well. It gives us a little bit of an edge because I would say the majority of people that work in our industry don't have a, a college education. And I, I don't know what it is exactly. I can't say what it is exactly, but I've always felt that it, maybe I had a little bit of an edge because, uh, you know, I had a deeper education than just uh, being trained how to do sound. So uh, I, I would I would totally agree with that. I mean, I remember um, when I was working at Sony and uh, we were in sound transfer or whatever, and a bunch of people standing around wasting time on the clock. And uh, somehow it came up in conversation um, about, you know, college and everything. And I thought everybody went to college, you know, and I was like, oh, yeah, you know, I got my bachelor's at Michigan State. And everybody, like the whole room turned around and looked at me and they're like, what? And I found out I was the only person there who had a college degree. Literally the only person who had a college degree. And and I, I that that was a shocker to me. And that kind of followed me, you know, through, through my whole career. I was like, you know, I would just kind of like, you know, surreptitiously try to figure out, you know, who had gone to college or whatever when you're talking about people's backgrounds. And it's true, man. Uh, uh, that is one of the things, um, you know, that helped us out most sure. But I want to tackle, um, tag on to what Patrick was saying is, yeah, we were all blank slates. But I think one of the the greatest things that uh, I ever learned was, you know, as being a blank, blank slate, um, you know, Richard Branson years ago, you know, started Virgin and all of that. 
billionaire, he once said, don't ever take a job because you don't know how to do it. Take it and then learn it as fast as you can. And that was the thing that, you know, I kind of took to heart, especially getting into the entertainment business, because, you know, you are, you're a blank slate and you, you're not going to walk in the door knowing all the answers to what, you know, needs to be done. But I, I think I told this to, to Gary and, and, you know, uh, probably Phil and Chris as well. You know, one of the greatest lessons I ever learned in the entertainment business wasn't what to do. It was what not to do because pretty much anybody can walk in the door and, you know, oh, you push this button and you do this and you know, the film goes around. Well, nobody uses film anymore, but anyhow, you know, <laughs> you do all this other stuff. And, um, uh, but it's really, you know, what, um, what, what Chris was talking about and Patrick as well is, you know, mixing is so much more. It, it's, it's psychological, it's handholding, it's doing all that stuff. And what I learned early on from watching all of these other mixers who had been around for literally decades, especially at Sony, was just watching them and watching how they treated clients and how they treated, you know, the directors and everybody else. And, and it's like, I, I could learn what they were doing, but it was far more important, like, oh, you don't, do this as far as your relationships go or with the client or whatever. And so when I actually was given the opportunity to jump into a, a mixing chair, I, I already had that. And that was like the great lesson right there was, you know, you could make mistakes at the console, but if you treat somebody like garbage or you mouth off to them or, or whatever it is, you're not coming back to work with them. And that's just, that's just how it is. Because I'll tell you right now, like my first mixes that I ever did, man, don't rent those DVDs. Uh, <laughs> they're, they're like the worst things I've ever heard in my life. But the thing was, was clients really loved working with me. And so they they were like, let's do our next series with you or whatever. And, you know, so over the course of 20 some years, you eventually get to a point where it's like, oh, OK, yeah, that that turned out pretty OK. <laughs> you know? Well, yeah, you're spending a lot of time uh, with clients, uh, whether it's a movie or a TV show, especially a TV series, and they just have to like being around you, not only, yeah. you know, your talent level is uh, assumed to a certain degree, but, uh, you know, they got to like hanging around you. Very true. Very true. Yeah. And the, the flip side are, you know, sometimes like you work with like a a, a client who's new and we're seeing that a lot more right now. And that can be tough, especially if they're not quick at making decisions and but you also get the side like these young like new uh, producers or showrunners or directors they might go on to do a bunch of cool stuff and if you make a great impression on them they'll you'll be their first call you know so yeah. you never know your your showrunner could just suddenly get a overall deal with netflix and then they could be hitting you up to add <laughs> on to what michael was saying oftentimes on the day of the playback or the review, especially if I'm working on a show that's really fast turnaround, really high stress, you know, I'll sometimes have, you know, a room of 10 people come in and sometimes they'll just be all frazzled and stressed and like, Oh, is it going? And they're like, so are you stressed as we are? And I'm always like, no man, it's all good. Even if I am <laughs> super stressed, like the energy that the person in this chair gives off sets the tone of the room. And if you are showing the stress level that they're showing, it's not going to be a smooth session. There's doubt, there's like insecurity, there's mistrust. 
And even if things aren't super smooth, you kind of need to keep that facade of like, I got this all going to be good. And by the time you leave here, everyone's going to be happy. It's going to be fun. It's all good. And if you give that kind of energy and that vibe up front, they kind of sit back with a, you know, a breath of relief and they know that it's going to be handled, you know? So energy and your ability to, to work with people. And like you're saying, like having, they want to, they're going to want to be around you and be around people that they enjoy being with. And it makes all the difference. Phil, to echo that, like, and what Michael and Patrick are saying and Andy, like the, the to me that with mixing, it's already been said, I would argue like what you actually know about, like how to push a fader is like 5% of the job. And like, and, and that's why I'm so appreciative of the opportunity I got with Patrick to, to, to learn what a mix tech was. I had no idea, but I think it's more and more common these days with a lot of people that are more sound editors move to the mixing chair. And, and a lot of times they haven't had a lot of experience on the mix stage. Whereas as a mix tech with like what Andy went through and what I went through with them and just seeing the dynamic on the stage and how you deal with the clients and things that's like the, the number one thing is just like, they need to have confidence. Like, cause the thing with the mix stage is it's not just the mix. Like it's kind of the last, like that in the color timing, right? It's like the last two pieces of completing a project. So when a client comes, I mean, in fact, when I worked with Patrick and Andy, you know, I believe the director, he, he referred to the mix stage as the sanctuary, right? Cause that's like the safe place. And so a lot of times right. when the directors are on the mix stage, it, you know, they love that. They love the mix process, not just because the movie's starting to come together, not just the edit, but the, the color timing and the sound mix and everything, you know, it's starting to look and feel like a, like a, like an actual film or a TV show or whatever. But it's also like the time away from all the noise. So they get off the email and off the, all the phones ringing all the time. And they're in this quiet spot with no windows, this dark room with, you know, three, four, five, 10, 15, 20 people, whatever it is, you know, and you're sitting at the console. It's not because you know how to EQ, you know, a resonance out of a sound because any, like anyone can learn how to do that. It's just that they have the confidence that you're there and you're on their team. And, and I've been fortunate enough to hop onto some bigger projects as of recent. And the biggest thing that another mentor of mine told me is it's like, look, the director just has to know that you're on his side. Like you're not there to do what you want to the film. Like you're, you're, you're paid to be there as an expert to help him fulfill his creative vision right his him or her or whomever it is even with me like with, I, you know I'm, I'm much more new to the mixing chair as a lot of you guys are on this call but uh when i've had the opportunity with these directors they all seem to love me for some reason but probably because i'm just enthusiastic i love it uh and i'm a guitar player so i don't mind i love the attention that's totally fine with me but but when i'm sitting there i just want you know they know that i'm there for them so whatever they want like and, and I think the experience comes with knowing when to, to talk up, right? If you disagree with everything, then they're just going to think you're against them. But if you if you pick your battles and you choose the right moments in time, like we might do something that, you know, we're, you're sitting there knowing this is not going to work. This is just terrible. And the director's like, great, move on. And you just know in the back of your head, like, okay, maybe next week when we go back to the scene might be the time for me to, you know, interject. And they might shoot it down. And if they do, that's fine because it's not my movie. It's theirs. You know, the older I get and the more people I meet, especially outside of the industry, too, I don't think it's just with this job. I think any industry that anyone tries to pursue um, after their education, it, the biggest thing that's going to help you get, you know, get places in life to me is just interpersonal skills and just knowing, like, if you're in a service industry, which this is, you're not paid because you know how to use an EQ or a fader. Like, we're, we're there because it's a service. We're there to serve, right? So no matter what, 
you just want to make the clients know that you're helping them with their project. So I think that's the huge thing that I had to learn. And once I have learned it, it's certainly helped. It's all about relationships. And this is how you get clientele. This is how you get repeat clients. And it's about being personable and the type of personality that people want to be around. Absolutely. One thing that I started doing a few years ago is if I have a room full of like, you know, six, eight people at the end of the session, I just jot down like certain things that I talked about with each one so that when they're back next week, I can, we can pick up those conversations. Oh. And then over the course of, you know, 10 weeks or 13 weeks, whatever, you know, however long you're working with them, you've actually already established a relationship with them just by catching up with what their kids are up to or what, you know, their holiday plans were or whatever. And it's super important not just to do that with the showrunner. Um, I would do it with everyone from the AEs in the room to the showrunner to like, you try to make sure that you're connecting with everyone because then the showrunner sees that you're connecting with everyone. Oh, yeah. and even the PA, con- the PA or whoever. Even the PA, everyone. And remembering people's names, like all the things that you learn, you know, that seem obvious. You know, for me personally, it's really hard to remember all the conversations I have with so many people over so many weeks or whatever. But then I also know when they come back next fall, oh, we were talking about this thing. And then I can be like, oh, so how's your kid's uh, school? You guys went to blah, 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 or, you know. And, and so it automatically picks up that relationship without just being. So how's the show sound? You know what I mean? It gives you that edge that we're actually human beings. We're actually people. I had for a long time, I had this weird thing where like I was always like a subordinate to the people behind me, you know, where they're the big shots in the, you know, living in Laurel Canyon and they're driving their Ferraris and I'm in my, you know, Camry that's dirty or whatever. There's like this. But at the end of the day, we're all people and we're actually in the same room working on the same thing. And once I got over that, I had this breakthrough of being able to not be super intimidated by some of these people who have been working in the industry for 30, 40, 50 years or whatever. And it, it breaks down that kind of intimidating barrier. So that's something that I've been trying to really focus on as of late is just really working on relationships. Cause also like you were saying earlier is you never know five years from now who any one of those people are going to be directing a film or going to be a showrunner or an executive at HBL or, you know, whatever it is. And if they remember you, you're going to get a call back. And that's how it goes. I I think the thing we kind of didn't really touch on and why this is so important is, yeah, it's, it's about getting the recurring business and, you know, building those relationships. But I think more importantly, at least for me, when I, when I was actually mixing, was I wanted to be interested in these people's lives and and I wanted to have that relationship because it's not a nine to five job. You know, when we go in in the morning, whatever our call time is, and I would always tell people this, it's like, I knew what time I was going to start. I never knew what time I was going to finish. And, you know, I could finish at seven o'clock at night. I could finish at midnight. I can't tell you how many days I was there at 4 a.m., 5 a.m., 6 a.m., whatever it is. You do it until the job is done. And so if you're sitting in a room of people that either you don't want to be with or don't want to be with you because you haven't fostered that relationship, it's 
pretty much pure hell. And, and so it's really, I think, from a self-preservation mode, it's like, I want to be interested. I want to be vested in these people's lives because we're going to be here for 16 or 18 hours today. And so, you know, yeah, exactly right, Chris. I don't want to just be, hey, how's, how did that sound? Did you like that better? Did you like it over here the way it was before, you know? Yeah, Michael, I think it's even, especially on, on, on projects that have extended hours, right, and get super crazy. The more you know the crew, like the more you, you know, because it's an all for one thing, right? You're on the same team, like you'd be working till, you know, midnight or later and the PA is going to get you dinner. So, you know, they're your best friend at that point when they bring the food back and, and, you know, and the editors and everyone. And so when you're with the same people for seven days a week for three, four, five weeks or whatever it is, like the more you get to know them, the more fun it is, the more gratifying, I think it is as well, because you have those memorable experiences. And you're not, you don't have the feeling of just slaving away at work for seven days a week. You're going to work on something, create something great out of nothing, which is the beauty of what we do. Um, with, yeah. With I mean, I, people. I, I used to kind of tell people, they're like, well, what do you do for a living? And, and, you know, to get back to, to, um, you know, your original question, Russ, when you were asking like, let's describe it for the listener. The best thing that I would tell people the easiest way and, and kind of, you know, flip, but at the same time, it's really how I felt about it was I got to go every day and sit in a big giant electronic sandbox and play with all of my best friends. Yeah. And and that that was work, man. And and, and let me just add one more thing because you're all like 110% correct. Uh, no, no matter how bad the project is, no matter how <laughs> you feel about the project, if you give it 100%, this is, as I used to say to all you guys at, at one point, this is the best project I'm working on today. So if you give it 100%, it's obvious and they feel it because from their point of view, this is the most important project ever. So if you give it your 100%, then, you know, it, 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 it they, they can feel that you're giving all of your effort into it. So that's an important equation as well. Totally. Either the project's amazing and you're helping it become more amazing or it's not great you're working with great people and you're trying to do what you can to make it as good as it can be yeah well like they everyone's kind of said multiple times is we're in a service industry and there's a creative side to it and uh an artistic side to it but at the same time we're there to you know to there's a vision of of someone and we're there to help kind of fulfill yeah. that and, you know, we're asked for our opinions on sometimes we're asked to build things and make things build design or, you know, what would you do with this, with the music in the scene? You know, we have leeway to do that, but it's the, it's the time with the people and the connection with the people. And it's about making that connection with the viewer as well, too. You know, it's all, it's all part of it. So we're up for uh, editorial for um, for Dahmer, uh, the monster, the Jeffrey Dahmer story on Netflix. Um, we like of projects I've done for Ryan Murphy. They tend to be very sensationalized and, and kind of bigger than life. And this is this is a project that. Um, you know, I actually haven't talked. I've had opportunities to talk about it but I've had a hard time with actually discussing the, the, the creative artistic side of it, knowing that there are families that were, you know, this brought back so much for these families 
I feel like that I know that a lot of families weren't happy with the with the show, but I feel like they did a a very beautiful job with um kind of shining a light on the victims and um I did, of of his shows like there wasn't they weren't glorifying anything where sometimes they do tend to glorify the violence and the horrific actions, but it's so much of it is fictionalized. This wasn't, and um, I feel honored to have worked on the show, to have taken part of it, and I'm, it's a it's a bittersweet thing for me. It's like I I'm grateful that we were we were nominated for it, but of any of the nominations, this is one where I'm like, it doesn't this doesn't matter, this doesn't matter to like it's the the story and these people who are continuing with the the struggles of of one person's actions. This doesn't mean anything. You know, I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful for the recognition because of the team that I work with, um, that I had the opportunity to work with from the mixers to the the editors. Because while I'm a supervising sound editor, you know, I'm not doing the nitty gritty work. Like uh, there's a dialogue editor and effects editor who's putting everything together. And I'm kind of like the point person between the producers and Ryan, the showrunner and the mix team and the editors. And it's a whole team of people. Yeah, one thing about that, uh, as far as the sensitivity of, of content, um, I'm reminded of a show I mixed last year. I mixed a four-part series called 11 Minutes, uh, and it was about the the music festival in Las Vegas and the shooting. And it was really, really difficult content. Um, a lot of it was POV cell phones and security camera, and it was very real. And um, there was always the conversation of like, are we sensationalizing this or are we telling a true story that isn't going to affect the victims, the victims' families, anyone attached to this project? How can we do it in a way that shows compassion and empathy, but is still true to what happened um so there was always kind of that in the background of making sure like you know we didn't want a big boom or a big swell or like anything that would really make it more than it more heavy than it already was but still respecting the story that we're telling um and there have been a there have been a couple projects like that where it's you know you have to really tread lightly and make sure that what we're bringing to the table is honoring the the vision of the showrunner or the creator and knowing what stylistically is appropriate, you know, Um, because we could have made that thing booms and pops and swells and made it, you know, whatever, but it's, it's all about the story. It's all about how the story is being told and through what point of view you want to experience that story. And so I, I get it. I get what you're saying, Gary, especially when, you know, it's it's tough. It was tough to work on, tough content to watch. Um, but sometimes these are stories that need to be told. Um, and therein lies the challenge. And, and it is, you know, because um, I think one of the things, especially, again, for the average viewer out there that they they don't realize necessarily is just how much we can use sound in in the choices that are made in sound editorial and especially in the choices that are made on the mix stage how much of 
what we use as sound, we use to manipulate the viewer. And, and so it is, it's a very fine line, you know, sometimes, I mean, I, I recall, you know, like not when, uh, th this wasn't a, um, a reality situation like, like Dahmer or 11 seconds, um, was, but, uh, at the end of the very first season of 24, it was the first time, you know, if you ever watched the series, you know, it, it had a very, very definitive clock sound at the beginning of the act in the middle of the act. And, at the end and um at the end of the, the very first series the very first year of it there was a whole well we fought for two things on that they had shot two endings and we were all under an nda for it so we couldn't like discuss it outside but they had shot two endings and in one of the versions jack's wife terry dies and she dies in his arms and um they weren't sure if they were going to go with that because it was it was pretty raw and at the same time she dies in his arms and then they bring up this big digital bam, 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 you know clock on top of it and i took the clock out and when we did the playback the the director and the producers were all there and they all just about fell out of their seats because we had done you know 24 of these episodes and they're like where's the where's the clock man what are you guys doing how is this final and i was like let it play without the clock. And, and we went back and forth and, you know, and they were talking to each other about it and they wanted me to put it back in. And I, and I said, I'm, I'm going to stake my gig on this because this is the one shot where you have drawn your audience in, you have let them sit with the emotion. Don't tell them what the emotion is. And it's the one thing, and every now and then I'll see little forums online or whatever, and it's the one thing that people talk about from that series is how they just were blown away because what they were expecting wasn't there and they had to just sit with themselves and understand. And that's, I think, ultimately the power of sound, or in that case, the absence or the, the power of the absence of sound. And it's one of the things as mixers that we have to be very, very cognizant of is, are we doing this to force an emotion or are we doing this to support an emotion? And um, that comes into play over and over and over every day, all day long while you're on the mix stage. It's it's learning the power of sound. You know, the, the step one in our careers is we're learning how to make something sound good. So we're learning EQ, we're learning reverb, we're learning panning, we're, you know, we're learning how to make it sound good. And then the next step is learning how sound can tell a story. Uh, and sound is so crucial. All these guys will tell you how crucial sound is to tell the story. The next step that I found in my career was learning how sound can evoke emotion, how that we're able to subtract or add or you know draw attention to this or whatever it is that we're trying to move the story forward sound is crucial and as a sound person it, it's important that you learn this step and then i will say at the twilight of my career uh what i where i find myself now is step four you become a master and you do all three of those fir first three things automatically by instinct and then you stop thinking like a sound person. You start to think as a filmmaker. And this is what 
this is what floats you, uh, uh, you know, at, at, at that level. You're thinking like a filmmaker. Alexander Payne's movie, Holdovers, he had a, a movie where Paul Giamatti's character, who's drunk getting ready for bed, has a blink, 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 a very cutesy music in there, kind of making light of the moment. And I said, Alexander, listen to this. He says, where's the music? And I said, exactly. He says, huh, it makes the scene feel more raw and it makes him a more pathetic character. I said, exactly. He said, I like it. Let's let's do it like that. So when, when you stop thinking like a sound person and start thinking as a storyteller, filmmaker, emotion evoker, then you you reach that kind of that master level, if you will. The ultimate compliment you could pay a music editor is that you have no idea what they actually did you know it's yeah, like totally if, if i did a good job i'm totally invisible like nothing i did should be noticed you know like you shouldn't hear edits or hear things out of place like it should just sound like everything was how it was supposed to be and the they made a great movie and the composer did an awesome job and like what's a music editor like that means we did perfect basically well those of us who know know just how crucial and essential a good music editor is believe me we all know this everyone in this uh, this call i was just going to tack on to that that you know it, it's a being a music editor is a really difficult job because you're serving two masters and you know it's like you you've got to yeah. you've got to serve the the vision of the director or producer you know showrunner if you're working on television but at the same time you can't throw the composer under the bus and destroy what you know their vision for what you know they wrote for the scene and so there's a lot of occasions where it's it's a real tightrope for the music editor to walk to try to kind of serve those two masters in in pursuit of you know a singular vision or you get an annoying mixer who says wait a minute you guys look what happens if you bring this piece of music <laughs> just four seconds later and everyone's like yeah that's a good i like that i like that and then we turn to chris and we go chris but we like how it ends so can you chop out four seconds and still make it sound musical and still make it work with the rest of the scene yeah so, yeah and, i mean and, there, and, there are and a lot Luke of masters you've got 10 minutes to do it so <laughs> yeah that's the other thing especially because <laughs> yeah, we hit overtime in 10 minutes right there you yeah, go producers <laughs> are coming in 30 minutes we're going to play back the whole thing so get it done now the cool thing for us too, I was going to add the last thing was like the, the cool part about it too, especially on the film side is we get a lot of time on the project. You know, we're, if they've done it right, we're basically there from the very earliest picture cuts all the way to the end. So you really, you really get to know the project and the people you're working with. And, you know, like, like everyone else has said, you kind of form those relationships and, you know, there's, there's certain clients where you just kind of go in and know your process and never, you know, like it's the same composer, the same director, and you just everyone kind of knows their role and part, and you you just make this whole machine go and make an awesome movie or TV show. I, you know, I'll I'll just double with what what Chris was saying about music editorial. I think goes overall for sound, and it's also something that I've told people for years is that you know um, because so many people, so many viewers think when they're watching a show, whether it's on television, you know, broadcast cable or in the theater, they think because they're not exposed to what it is that we do professionally, that, oh, that's just how it sounded when they shot it. <laughs> and, you know, and it was just all cut together and nobody, you know, like, cause that's how it is on their cell phone. Right. 
But the, you know, the upside and the downside of what we all do uh, as professionals in sound is that if we're really, really good at what we do, you will never know we were in the room. Yeah, I think it's it's the invisible art, unless it's something extremely special and maybe unique, you know, for instance, Gravity, like was a big first Atmos show, right? And you got the dialogue flying around the room. So most people are going to be aware of that. But Michael, I agree. I mean, generally, if the mix is like, I think more so than not, it's people notice it when it's done poorly, right? Yeah. If it's done really well, someone goes and they enjoy the movie. And that's kind of what we all strive for. They don't notice it because that means that the story is being told and they're completely mm -hmm. into the story. They're not thinking about, you know, that ADR line that pops out or the, the bad music cut or, you know, any, any sort of potential problem on the, on the mix. We're evoking emotion without the audience realizing that they're being manipulated. If, if we're doing our job well, uh, we're, we're being subtle at it. So there you go. I want to, I want to say too, that Gary is the, Mm -hmm. you know, the common denominator between all of us. And so we all started as blank slates. We all do. It doesn't matter. You know, even Tiger Woods started at a, as a blank slate at one point, you know, and never picked up a golf club before. But the one thing that Gary's given all of us is like, he's, he's definitely seen something in us that we might not necessarily see. And um, it took me a while to realize that. And really appreciate it. I'm just thankful for his mentorship and friendship too. The long time ago that I graduated and it's the fact that I'm, when he's out here, we get together and when I'm back, I try to see him and we, you know, it's, it's, uh, and all these guys too, like, you know, we're colleagues and friends and um, I'm grateful for all of it. One additional bit. I think I learned this from Gary Reed was always try to be the dumbest guy in the room. Ah. And that can be applied to life, not just audio. <laughs> but surround yourself that, with people that are going to push you and, and make you better at whatever it is you're, you're doing. We've been listening to a group affectionately known as the MSU Audio Mafia. And I'm Russ White. This is MSU Today.